now listening to the Black Variant. Black Variant on RNC Radio. Welcome everybody to Black Variant Issue One. We're at 140, right, Van? I just I just want to make sure we got, got 140. Yeah, issue 140 of the Black Variant. I am X the Exile, joined by 1017 Van, where the God lays himself. What's up, guys? And we are here to give you another latest and greatest in comic book news. But we have a very special episode today. And of course, we have nothing but illustrious guests here on the Black Variant. And today is not any regular Tuesday, and it's not even any regular transfer day, like it is on the our guests' other side of the world. <laughs> um, today we have the writer of titles such as Mini Desolela Star, yep. Catwoman, Justice League Dark, The Swamp Thing, Venom, plus Eisner nominated, but most, most importantly, Blammy Award winner, yeah, Rom V yeah, on this show yeah, today, Rom. our Blammy of the Year yeah, winner. Yeah. Rom, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure, pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh man, this is exciting, man. Definitely let you know you're one of our favorite writers. We talk about you all the time on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for letting us uh, interview you. Thank you. Uh, Shout out to your assistant. I really hope I'm saying your name right, and I really apologize if I'm not. Kiara, who has been so nice and pleasant to deal with and email and correspond with. Shout out to her as well. Um, yeah, she set up a whole time for us to get get together and do this interview, and then I messed it up. So, <laughs> hey, man, it's all good. It's perfect. It's all good. Once again, as professional podcasters, we we regularly mess up our our chords and stuff like that. So it is all good, man. Then uh, you want to start us off today? Yeah, I, I want to Ram. I want to get a little bit to like uh, your upbringing. So, how would you describe yourself as a child, like growing up? Um, I was a daydreamer. I was uh. <laughs> I got in trouble a lot um, for for lying and making up stuff, but it was never like I wouldn't I wouldn't lie like uh, it was never like dog, my dog ate my homework or stuff like that. Right, it was right. always like I met a Martian on the way to school. <laughs> um, so I was I was artistically inclined from a very young age, but also I was very high energy, very curious. Um, got into a lot of trouble because of that as well. Um, I was a misfit in school, um, didn't really have a good social life in school. And then I went to college and, and everything changed. And I was like the popular guy in college. Um, <laughs> and then on the other side of that, I achieved some kind of Zen balance. And I was like, I am wise in the ways of both nerds and jocks. <laughs> <laughs> Breaking them together, bridging the gap. Oh, we always big into reading and writing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, I didn't really think about writing as a, as a hobby. I mean, as a profession until I was, I don't know, maybe like 26, 27, so much later. Uh, but I, but I'd been writing, I was always interested in stories uh, since I was a kid. Uh, mm. First thing I wrote, I think of any length was uh, me trying to do a ripoff of Lord of the Rings when I was 12. Um, (laughs) And I ended up writing about 40,000 words of it, uh, which is a significant length. Like, that's the length of a small level kind of stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
So, uh, so I at least had the commitment to sit down and put down words on paper from, from a very young age. Um, I was also into art. Uh, I love drawing. I, I continue to have that as a hobby as well. So, mm -hmm. no, that's good stuff, man. As far as like, um, like superhero characters stuff, yeah. Any characters growing up that you just found yourself attached to at a young age? Or? I mean, I didn't really have uh, uh, a lot of the Marvel DC uh, characters when I was growing up because I was mm -hmm. growing up in India, right, right. Uh, and access to those characters was very limited. Um, but I did have access to Indian reprints of some of the more European superhero stuff. So Phantom, Mandrake, Flash right, Gordon, right. Nice. that stuff. Um, so I was a huge, huge sort of Phantom fan when I was a kid. Um, I used to have, I used to find all these uh, single issues in, in secondhand shops because India, they don't have comic shops. Uh, I used to find them in secondhand shops uh, and pick them up by the tens and twenties, and they would be really, really cheap. Uh, and my sister and I would go uh, to a to a bookbinder, and we'd get them all bound into these giant, like it would put some of the collected omnibuses to shame. Yeah, that's about the, size. <laughs> the size of that tome. Um, and, and it wasn't it wasn't in any sort of reading order either. It was just like, oh, let's find like a hundred issues and throw them together and make a collection. It's kind um, of like a personal mood board, like you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so I had yeah. So that was a big fan of uh, Phantom. I continue to have a soft spot for it, um, and I know there are others in the comics industry who share my love of the character, because um, I mentioned it in passing to Nick Darrington, mm -hmm. and. For the next like hour or so that followed, Nick just kept sending me sketches of the Phantom <laughs> on my Twitter DMs. So yeah, shout out to Nick. Yeah, shout out to Nick. Yeah. Dope. So question for you actually. So you mentioned that the way you got into superheroes and comics and stuff like that was a little bit unconventional because you didn't have access to some of those characters. Yeah. So if it's okay, could you share it with us? Because everyone has one memory where they were, you know, they were hooked for it. You know, like. I remember my first time watching Batman the Animated Series, and I've been a Batman fan ever since. I mm. remember my first time watching wrestling, and I've been a wrestling fan ever since. What's the one core memory for you that like hooked you onto the characters? I mean, I want to I want to say at least in terms of the characters, uh, probably the two biggest influences for me were the animated series, Batman animated series as well but also the, the Spider-Man animated series. That, uh, so both of those would play Batman on the weekends in India and then Spider-Man on like a weekday afternoon. So it was like a staple for me in terms of I would come back home from school and the first thing I would do is watch either the Spider-Man show or on the weekends, first thing in the morning, I would watch the Batman right, right. Um, mm -hmm. series. So, so that was pretty important uh, in terms of influences. But um, like I said, I got into actually thinking about writing comics much later. And the the one sort of big memory for me with that is actually uh, Sandman associated. Uh, I was 20, I was in the States. Uh, I was living in Philadelphia, studying at UPenn, shout studying to, to be a chemical. Yeah, shout out to Philly. Um, I was studying to, to become a chemical engineer. Uh, and a friend of mine for my birthday gifted me volume one of, uh, of Sandman. Uh, and I remember like sitting down to read it at like some nine or 10 o'clock at night. And then I f I'd finished the entire book in, in a couple, in a few hours. And it was like, 
I don't know, midnight or one or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I went like, God, I have to wait until tomorrow morning <laughs> before I can buy the next one and devour that. And genuinely, like, ever since reading that book, I kind of went and found everything, not only Sandman, everything Neil Gaiman had ever done. I read all of that. And then that put me on. I was reading somewhere in an interview uh, article that uh, Alan Moore had recommended Neil to, to Karen Berger when she was at Vertigo. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, oh, I wonder who this Alan Moore character is. Uh, I wonder what he's done. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the, you can, you can see how that can lead into like a, a Vertigo shaped rabbit hole where I read a lot of what Alan Moore had done. And then I started reading that there was this like up and coming writer at the time who was, who made his sort of chops criticizing Alan Moore in Wizard magazine. I was like, oh, I wonder what Grant Morrison has written. Yeah, what <laughs> so, yeah, so those were my kind of big, but that Sandman volume one was the big moment that was just kind of opened the floodgates, if you will. Like that, like switch the light bulb on for you. Yeah. Okay. Right, right. Um, so I wanted to ask you, like, what is your creative process? Like, let's say it's a writing day. Like, oh, I guess I get some stuff done. Like, how do you set up? How do you get situated? Like, what's your kind of creative space like? Well, um, I've, I've actually been through this a couple of times in my newsletter. Um, I'm pretty organized in terms of a writing routine. Mm -hmm. um, I wake up around 1030 in the morning. I'm not a morning person. Um, <laughs> from 1030 to 1130 or 12-ish, I'm just like this zombie that is floating around the house saying good morning to people and absently drinking coffee and watching right, right. the news on TV. And then my first writing session is usually from about 12 in the afternoon to um, three or four with a small break for lunch. Um, and in that, my process is usually I'll sit down and if I'm outlining, it'll all be on, on uh, physical paper and pen. Um, and if I'm actually writing the script, then I assume I have my outline done. So I'll be sitting on a desk and typing away. Um, and then from four to seven ish, I take a break, I'm not doing much, uh, play a video game, watch some TV, I'll go pick up my son from his nursery, come back. Um, then I grab dinner between seven and eight. And then usually around 10 o'clock at night after after the kids asleep i'll go do my second session of writing and from 10 to about one or two in the morning um is when i when i do my second session so that's a that's a pretty healthy routine yeah, it's a pretty full yeah. day like we've had yeah. other writers on and you, you definitely have the most structured schedule we've heard you know a lot yeah. of people just wake up and like oh yeah i felt like writing so i wrote today you know no, I uh, I I moved here to the UK to do a course in creative writing, and the biggest thing I took away from that course was like having a routine helps. Not getting up from your desk helps. Writing regularly every day helps. Like I wrote fifty issues of comics last year. Mm -hmm. uh, apart from doing video game writing work and some TV animation writing work, uh, and that wouldn't have been possible if I didn't have like structured like okay, I sit down for like. Right. I don't know, seven yeah. or eight hours every day and write. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Um, actually, talking about your writing, we know you got started in 2016 on a graphic novel called Black... I want to make sure I'm saying this right. Moomba? Yeah, Black Moomba. 
That's Bart right. Moomba, that you also self-published. Can you tell us about more about your story about how you broke into the industry as a brown comic creator? Yeah, um, I mean, I I had already sort of started dabbling in comics back when I was in India as well. Mm -hmm. um, I'd written a, a series called Aghori, um, which which did fairly well in India. Um, but before that, I was writing mostly uh, short stories. As getting them published uh, in magazines, uh, digital online magazines, if you will, uh, and it was only because, like, one of my cousins said, "You have such a visual writing style. Why don't you write, start writing comics?" Um, is is like that's the moment where I went, like, "Oh yeah, I do like comics, and I wonder why I haven't tried writing any of them." Uh, so I wrote some, and uh, I had moved to the UK, and in, in I quit chemical engineering in, in 2012, 13. Uh, and this was all the short story stuff was all between sort of 2013 and 2015. Uh, and then 2015, I'd moved to the UK to study creative writing. Um, and I wrote a novel as part of that course. Um, and at the end of that, I had written enough short stories in, in the comic format for me to go, okay, you know, I have a book here. I should probably reach out to some artists and, and see if we can make this book. And I had known a few artists from my time in India because I'd written a Kodi. Um, and I reached out to these artists and we had four short stories. We put them together, each of them about eight, maybe ranging between eight and 12 or 14 pages long. Um, and once they were done or, or pretty close to done, I started sending out pages to publishers because I had no idea if it was any good. Um, mm. I thought it was good, but you know, then again, that, that might just be me. Um, and so <laughs> I showed it around to a bunch of creators and to, to my very pleasant surprise, a lot of them came back with like, oh, this is, this is very good. You should publish this. Um, and I tried to get it published, but there seemed to be this reticence to publish something uh, that was a black and white book. It was set in India, featured Indian protagonists. Uh, and so mm -hmm. I got a lot of rejection from a lot of places and, mm -hmm. It was uh, Chris Staros at Top Shelf, um, which is now part of IDW, I think. Um, he wrote back to me, he said, Ram, I hope uh, you don't take this the wrong way. I, I really like what you've done here and I think it's very good, but I think you should self-publish this because you're not going to find a publisher who wants to take a risk on a book like this. Uh, and so I said, fine, you know, if that's the case, if there are people telling me it's good, but also people telling me I should self-publish it. Um, I went, you know, the Kickstarter route. I had, I had a friend who had a very successful Kickstarter before that. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Ryan O'Sullivan, yeah. who did Fearscape and, and Boy Trip. Um, and Ryan and I sat down and he gave me this whole plan about how to get a successful Kickstarter off the, uh, off the, off the ground. Uh, and we kickstarted the book and we raised, I think, somewhere around 13,000 pounds. Nice. And we had we had asked, I think, like 2000 or something to, to publish. Mm. Uh, and so I think that was the first time I had a sense of like, OK, people want to read this stuff. You know, mm. they don't they don't they're not just paying to to, you know, let me make the comic book. There are more people than I needed who, who are paying to make sure this book happens. Right. And that's a very reassuring, very lovely feeling to have. Mm. Uh, and so we made that book. And because we had all of this cash on hand, it turned out to be a nice hardcover 
well designed um, and all of that. And then I sent that out to um, a bunch of editors, uh, Jamie Rich among them at DC. Mm -hmm. um, and Jamie didn't read that book for the next year and a half. So I had no idea. <laughs> what he um, but then he was on a train to San Diego. And so at 3 a.m. in the morning, I get a message on my phone from Jamie Rich going, hey, I just read Black Mumba on the train to San Diego. And I feel really bad for having slept on this book because it's great. Do you want to come write more stuff like this at Vertigo? And he was a Vertigo editor at the time. And that was like amazing to me because, yeah, be you know, in yeah. the context, yeah. <laughs> I had gotten into comics off of reading Vertigo. So I said, okay, yes, I would love to. And we, we, we outlined the Black Mumba volume two and uh, it was going into its green light meeting. So I was very excited. And I get an email from Jamie going like, I'm sorry, I'm not going to put this through the green light because I'm not at Vertigo anymore. And I can't find another editor to take this on. So I apologize. And I felt really bad. I was like, oh man, almost there. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And then a couple of weeks later, I get an email from Jamie going, hey, I'm uh, actually, I couldn't say this at the time, but I'm the bat office editor now. Do you want to come write some Batman? Oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's a pretty good substitute for not having a Vertigo book. So, um, so yeah, so so my first sort of DC breakthrough was writing the um, short story in Batman Secret Files number one. Um, it was around the time that I put out these Savage Shores, uh, and then James Tynan, who was writing Justice League Dark at the time, read mm -hmm. these Savage Shores, and he was like, hey, do you want to come write an annual for me? And so I wrote the uh, Justice League Dark Annual, which was kind of my second big thing at DC, and then and then it kind of built from there. So so that was my process of breaking through into 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 regular, consistent published work, I suppose. Oh man, you speak you spoke a lot about like how people were just you know reassured you and helped you get certain places. Uh, how yeah. big has community been towards just in in this space for you? I think I think it's very important, but I also think that there is nothing more exciting for a, a creator who who was already established to see work that they can look at and and feel excited by. Because yeah. right when when you're when you're a fan and you're just starting to read comics, everything is exciting. Mm -hmm. But when you've been a creator and you've like I don't know written a like uh, one of the first people who who really helped me out was uh, Kieran Gillen, um, and he's he's based out of London. So I met him. A couple, yeah, shout out to Kieran Gillen. Uh, I had met Kieran uh, a couple of times at one of these sort of London comics get-togethers, and he was always super accessible, super helpful. Uh, but I remember um, sort of seeing Eric Stevenson, the the publisher at Image. Uh, at one of the conventions here in the UK. And I wanted to show him Black Mumba and then I wanted to pitch him my next book, which ended up becoming Paradiso. Um, and as I was walking up to pitch to Eric, Kieran stops by, puts a hand on my shoulder and goes, Eric, you should take Ram seriously. Ram, this is Eric Stevenson. I've introduced you <laughs> to now speak. And then he walks away. Um, and that, that is super, super important because now Eric knows to take my work seriously because right. he's got a, a creator who's known for doing interesting, great work. 
uh, who's come to him and said, this is important, right? So I think that kind of community presence is super important. Like uh, John Arcudi gave me a quote for Black Mumba that was very, very lovely, very heartfelt. And I know John's like a person who takes his quotes and his opinions of things quite seriously. So I'm, I'll always be grateful for that. Um, Ron Mars helped me out tremendously. He was one of the few people who used to come to India uh, for, for conventions and stuff. And so I think um, that sense of community very much exists. But I also think that we talk a lot about community and we talk a lot, and, and it encourages new creators to think like it's all about going to conventions and it's all about meeting yeah, editors yeah, yeah. and it's all about shaking hands and saying hi to the right people. Mm -hmm. No, like the best introduction you can give me uh, as, a, as a new creator is to show me work that makes me shut up and just read. You right. know? <laughs> um, and so I think, yeah, I think community is very important, but I also think like there's no better calling card than the quality of work that you do. Hmm. Wow, that's good stuff, man. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, actually, so I asked this to everybody. What was has there been a moment in your career, or if in, if it has, go ahead and tell us that the moment that you felt like you arrived or like you were now like among the best of your craft? I I don't know that that kind of moment ever exists uh, for someone certainly who is mostly preoccupied with the quality of their work mm -hmm. um because I'm, I'm super pragmatic like i know one day you could be the most celebrated thing on the on the internet on the show floor wherever you want to be and then the next day you're nothing you don't matter mm -hmm. the only thing that that stands the test of time is the work you do like my books will still be here 20 years from now regardless of whether i am or not um, and so I tend to put all my focus into that and I tend to be very sort of pragmatic about fame, recognition, awards, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, that said, I will, I will still give you a nice answer in terms of, <laughs> um, this time at San. So I went to Sandy. I've only been to San Diego comic con, like I think two, maybe three times. Right. Um, I was there in 2019 and, um, I had, maybe two books out. I think these Savage Shores had just come out. Mm -hmm. um, and I had, had a bunch of meeting with editors uh, and and I knew that I was, uh, you know, gonna be doing work over the next few years. I was quite happy with it, <coughs> excuse me. But um, yeah, I was walking around this massive convention with thousands and thousands of people going like, this is too much, like, I am I am like a tiny tiny portion of this massive industry clearly um and look at all the amazing stuff that people are making and it it was a moment of feeling a little bit overwhelmed by like holy shit this is big um and then the pandemic happened so I didn't go for the next 3 years uh, and then I went back I think last year um and I was walking by the waterfront where all the bars are, and then you've got the Hilton and the and the uh, Marriott there, mm -hmm. and you have the convention center. And I was walking around the back of the convention center, and I got stopped like three times with random people going, "Hey, aren't you Ram V? Can I take a picture with you?" 
<laughs> and that is the most surreal feeling you have, at least I've ever had, because <laughs> I'm just a random dude who lives in London who flew all the way to spend like three days in San Diego and then got stopped by by people I don't know in a crowd who, who <laughs> recognized me. I don't know from where. I don't even like. I'm not even. I don't even post that many pictures online. So. <laughs> um, so that that was pretty great, uh, and that was a moment where I was like, "Oh, it's it's a thing. Like people read my books. Who knew?" Even <laughs> oh, so, how much success you had? That still is like a, a interesting thing for you. Like you know, people coming up to you. A lot of people read your books, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Know you know, like... no, but it's usually it's unusual for me. So. But this is also a difference between like living in in England and and I think living in America. I imagine if I was in the U.S., I'd be going to a lot more stores, a lot more conventions. Right, right, uh, right. And so this idea of like people knowing who I am and my work uh, would seem, I suppose, less surreal. But I live in London, where the most comics people do is they get together in a pub and drink a lot of beers <laughs> and go home. And usually the people in the pub are like. What are these nerds doing in the back? What's going on? Right. You know? <laughs> um, and so that's that's quite a departure from you know random people stopping you while you're walking around the back of a convention. So right, right. it's pretty it's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh man, our, our, our listeners would be very upset with me if I didn't ask you about Swamp Thing, man. We we, we talk about this book all the time, how much we love it, and what yeah, you've yeah, done no, for the I character. What you you really like wrong life back to the character i would say in some you know a certain extent so going into writing it how did you feel what was your thoughts was there anything you wanted to convey like was there like a mission statement for this book or well um i pitched this as part of uh dc's kind of reinvention for 5g which didn't end up happening but the pitch was good enough to to survive the collapse of that um, you made it through two regime changes, man. You should pat yourself on the back. Yeah, I mean, well, it, it, the pitch made it through, which makes me feel a lot better, which is great. Um, and I remember when I first got that green light, I think it was with uh, with editors uh, Alex Carr. Um, I remember when I first got that green light, first thing I did was I rang up Karen uh, Gillen and, and I said, hey, man, so I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed in that, you know, I've got the Swamp Thing book greenlit. And then my next sentence was like, and I realized it's a British writer writing Swamp Thing, which is not a thing that has happened since uh, since Alan Moore last wrote it. Exactly. <laughs> and I, had, I couldn't even finish that sentence because I heard Kieran on the other side go like, ooh. I was like, man, don't do that. I need, <laughs> I need, I need encouragement. I don't need right. you to go like, oh no. Um, but I suppose, I, mean, I suppose there's no getting around that, right? Like it's seminal work. It's it's work from one of the industry's, cre I think, most brilliant creators. Uh, Absolutely. And probably, um, you know no no shade to to anyone else who's worked on the book you know i've read the len ween run i've read the dysart and brian capon and the original um rights and, and and i think to me that character is is 
kind of shines through the most in Alan's run. And mm -hmm. so it is impossible to not be influenced by it. And so my biggest challenge was to go, okay, how do I make something that isn't just superficially influenced by Alan Moore's run? How do I make something that is not aping what Alan Moore tried to do, mm -hmm. but rather really understands what he was trying to say and why, and understands why that story, why those stories were so successful. Um, and in doing so, understand the core of why people want to read Swamp Thing stories. And yes, the character is amazing. Yes, the the you know the the heritage of that book is amazing. But really, that book is amazing because it is it, it forces the reader to ask questions about how we perceive our own existence, our longevity, our short time on Earth. Do we look at ourselves as human beings? Or do we look at ourselves as monsters? What are we willing to sacrifice in the pursuit of greater things, et cetera, et cetera? Mm -hmm. And if you look at those stories that way, then I took all of those things from, from Alan's run and from bits and pieces of uh, other, other runs. Um, but then I said, that is a, that is a run from the 1980s and it has to be, this has to feel like it's a run that belongs in, in 2020, 2021. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And so I wrote a character that I was most familiar with in 2020, 2021. Um, and I said, you know, it has to be an Indian character. It has to be someone who's struggling with the loss of their, their environment uh, because you can't you can't write a swamp thing story in 2023 and not talk about climate and the planet changing mm -hmm. um but i wanted to do that thematically and philosophically and 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 you know ended up creating uh a a, a well-received well-appreciated run in that process it was it was really lovely during that process did you did you have to push for any story elements of that because what you said sounds to us sounds completely rational right but if you talk to someone of a different complexion they would be like a brown you want a brown indian man as swamp thing what the hell is wrong with you you know what i mean no actually it was coded into the pitch so everyone was quite excited about um the fact that it was pitched that way so mm -hmm. um you know I do think that the, I do think that there is a real case of gatekeeping and and reluctance to to have characters from other backgrounds and and other races in these books, but largely I think that happens from outside mm -hmm. the creative forces. Um, right, right. And this, but this might also be a product of my time at DC. I didn't start writing this book until there had been multiple regime changes and, and there were new people in all in a lot of positions. But I certainly think that of the people that are there now and that have that are that have been there since that change, mm -hmm. uh, I have not experienced anyone who came up and said, Oh, we shouldn't do this. Mm -hmm. uh, if anything, there was once I think there was one time a question asked about like why are we changing this? What is the what is the justification to change from Alec Holland? Mm -hmm. uh, which I think in itself is a bit of a loaded question. Like no one ever, if I, if I picked 
like a white blonde superhero character. Uh, I would never be asked, like, can you justify why this white blonde superhero? Like, <laughs> this is my person here. <laughs> right. Uh, and so, so I think that that justification for change in itself is a, is, is an odd question, but uh, I also, I also forgive it. I don't think it's born out of malice. Um, but that, that question was easy to answer because I said, if you go back and read issue number so-and-so of Alan Morse run, he literally has Swamp Thing burying Alec Holland's bones. Yeah. So I feel like, I feel like we can do that now. We're okay. We can bury the bones of someone who has been telling these stories since 1980s mm. and pick a new character, tell a new news story that way. Also because purely from a craft point of view, Swamp Thing stories are either about Swamp Thing more about the person, the human being behind Swamp Thing. Mm -hmm. And then you have various points in which those two narratives intersect, right? The problem is, if you're telling the story with that same human being, and you've been telling these stories since before, since 1960s, I don't know, um, in, in all its various iterations, Alec Holland's story, if you look at all the runs that have that have come over the years, eventually ends up being about the same thing. It's about Alec Holland and Abby Holland and Anton Arcane and the drama that exists between them. Mm -hmm. And all of the wild stuff that goes off kilter and off tangent happens with the Swamp Thing side of things. And that creates an imbalance because it means that as human beings, we're only capable of having the same drama over and over again yeah. While as a green swamp creature, you're capable of having interesting journeys into other planes <laughs> of reality if you want. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want that to be the case. I wanted readers reading this book to discover a new swamp thing, but also discover a new human being behind swamp thing. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, so those were my motivations. I didn't really have a lot of resistance to it at all. Um, I think the only the only sort of resistance, and I get this with every book I pitch, whether at uh, whether at DC or at Marvel, is I get editors always warning me like, "Okay, you can't. This can't be like Vertigo. It can't be weird and philosophical. <laughs> it has to have some punching. It has to have some people in costumes." Right. And I'm always like, "Yes, yes, of course." And then if you look at all of my work, it's it's always hopefully always weird and philosophical. Despite having people in costumes punching each other. Oh man! Speaking of speaking of Marvel, you wrote you wrote uh, Venom with uh, Al Ewing. How was he collaborating with him? Yeah, so Al's one of the first people who actually read Black Mumba, uh, and, I, and I should have mentioned him. Shout out to Al. Um, uh, he was one of the first people who read Black Mumba, and he was like, you know, this is. I was gonna give you feedback, but then I decided. I was having too much fun reading it, so I have no feedback to you, um, <laughs> which is great. Hell of a compliment. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so Al and I had known each other for quite some time before Venom, uh, and really my my primary attraction to taking on Venom was the fact that I was going to be sort of uh, tag teaming with, with Al. Um, and because we were going to do it in this kind of structural way where Dylan was going to be uh, the host of Venom, but then also we were going to have Eddie Brock's story, which was going to be him as King in Black. Um, we thought that, hey, there's this kind of bifurcating narrative. What if we did two narrative strands that pushed and pulled at each other via the events that happened? 
And then Al, of course, went like, yes, but also through time. And I was like, <laughs> okay, like that's, Al Ewing. So dumb, you know. <laughs> that's infinitely more complicated and bizarre. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, so, so I think we ended up, I think that runs ended up splitting opinion, but also being, I don't know. I'd like to think it's the most interesting fandom has been in, 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 in a while. Uh, no shade again to anyone who's written the character before. Of course, there have been yeah. some big runs on that character, but I don't think we've ever had a split between two characters, time traveling, curving back on itself, eating its own tail, then a run. Sorry, oh, someone's at my door, and you're going to hear that. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. You're all good <laughs> Speaking of Al, um, what, did you, what do you think? You read? I'm sure you read Immortal Hulk. Uh, what was your thoughts yeah. on Immortal Hulk? Yeah, I think I think it was the most inventive uh, anyone had been with that tier of like really popular big character in yeah. in a long time in in any uh, in um, any superhero comic published, I would say, mm -hmm. uh, and I think it was the culmination of a lot of things Al had been doing anyway in a lot of his other work, like on, on Defenders and and. Um, he's always had that inclination to do that, but it felt like it felt certainly like at least the first half of Immortal Hulk, mm -hmm. it crystallized Alf's desire to do a character-focused, inward-looking thing that then expanded out to becoming this kind of large, big, epic Marvel story, if you will. Right, right. Yeah. Um, actually, you <laughs> talked a lot about creators and showing love to creators and community. Um, who's a current comic creator whose work that you absolutely love and can't wait to see again each and every time? Um, well, there's a book coming out right now called 20th Century Men by Denise Campbell uh, and Stepan Morian, I think, and Aditya Bideker on Letters. Um, and I've known Denise for a really long time. Uh, and I know I've seen his work before and I've always known that he's got this kind of streak of brilliance in his work. Um, and it's great to see him kind of break through with this book that I think it, it rich, is richly deserving of all the attention it's getting. So um, I'm very excited to see what Denise does next. Um, I've always been excited about my, my very, very dear and good friend, Dan Waters, and my very dear and good friend, Alex Pacnadel. Um, I think they've both been doing interesting work for years. I'm always excited to see what uh, what comes up next. Uh, Alex has got a book called All Against All that's out right now. Uh, that's, you know, again, richly richly pra praised and, and, and deservedly so. Um, and Dan's, I think, worked on two of the most interesting DC books that, that I've read in recent past, uh, Arkham City, Order of the World, and uh, the, the more recent Azrael uh, run as well, um, and yeah, I'm. I'm. I think he's working on a Loki book for Marvel now. I'm very excited to see what he does with that. Nice. Okay. Um, um, sorry, one more, and a creator that I always follow, regardless of what book they're doing, where is probably Kieran's work. Uh, Once in Future just ended, but yeah. my God, what a run it has been! It's, it's been great. Great comic. Uh, who's someone that you want to collaborate with but just haven't got the chance yet? 
we're going to be here forever if I can start going to a list of people that I want to collaborate with. All right. Make a top um, five off the top of your head. I can't, I can't, I can't commit to being top of anything, but I'll, I'll give you five. Um, I would love to do something with, with uh, Bill Sienkiewicz, um, J.H. Williams III, um, and, and both of whom have, you know, worked on covers for my books and I have interacted with J.H. quite a bit in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm already collaborating with uh, one of the artists that I've had, like, wanted to collaborate with for a very long time. That's Evan Cagle, who's doing all the covers on Detective right now, but Evan and I have a creator-owned book coming out soon. Um, Jason Sean Alexander, who worked on Philadelphia um, and and did and did Spawn before that, I think is a is a phenomenal artist and, and I would love to do something with him. Um yeah, yeah, I feel like that's that's a good that's a good set of numbers. Yeah, that's a good five. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's gonna be any five. That's a good five. Um, gotta ask you, <laughs> it's perfect timing with doing this. What do you think about the uh, new DC slate of everything coming out? Is there anything that stands out to you, like Swamp Thing? I know, you know, pretty excited to see. Is there anything you're excited about with that new DC slate? I mean. I have to be careful what I say here because yeah. <laughs> because there are there are things that aren't announced yet that are also yeah. part of the upcoming slate that I'm aware of. Right. But no, I I would say I let me, let me say this. I know what Josh Williamson's plans are for his Superman book um, that was just recently been announced. Um, and so uh, no, I think recently solicited an issue one is out soon. Yeah. Um, so I'm very excited to see what he does with that. Um, I know a little bit about what, about stuff that Tom King is working on. So I'm very excited to see that. Uh, and then I'm also part of like the, the Gotham group of books. So I know Chip's plans, uh, for, for Batman. I know Teeny's plans for Cat, Catwoman. So I'm kind of without, without getting into the specifics of which books and what I think is happening and each kind of excited for the general direction that these books are going in, um, kind of having preview knowledge of what's going to happen is, is always a, a, a notoriously exciting thing. Um, <laughs> and then I am talking about a couple of things, kind of big reinventions on, on a few things or a big, big sort of re relaunching of a few things uh, that hopefully we'll see pan out. If not, if not this year, then the next, but very excited to, to, to get to work on these things. Nice. Uh, you have any advice for any uh, upcoming writers or creatives in general, like general knowledge that you would like to share with them? Yeah, I would say, I would say the most useful advice I can give someone is focus on the work. Right. Uh, make sure your work is uniquely you, right? Like, like, I mean, this should be, this should be common knowledge, but I don't think enough people talk about it. Like, <laughs> DC and Marvel or any of the other big publishers, they all have creatives that are working on, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 books at these companies or however many books they release. And if you sound like exactly like one of them, then why would they hire you over just continuing to hire that person? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And that should be your focus as a creator. 
is how do I sound like me? How do I convey my enthusiasm and my feelings and my excitement about these things through my work? Uh, and why, why can't you find that anywhere else? Um, if you can get to a point where you know that your stories are going to be uniquely yours, then there's nothing like it. And, and you will find that work comes your way. You will find that recognition comes your way because, um, because you're focused on, on the work and, and everything, everything that comes after becomes much easier, becomes much easier to talk to editors because you're confident in your work. It becomes much easier to talk to other creators because you're confident in your work. Oh man. That's, that's so. A lot of people don't talk about that. I think you're absolutely right. Like you just, just focus on what you got to do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I feel like there is this inclination to look at your work as a job mm -hmm. that you do and then look at success as a thing that you get because you do other things outside of your job. So I made a book, but I'm successful because I sold so many thousand copies. Right, no, right. no, no. You're successful because you made that book, regardless of how many thousands of copies it sold. Like you're not successful because it was marketed well or enough retailers picked it up. And I think this misconception of like popularity and sales and industry recognition and everyone mm -hmm. knows my name, none of that means anything if your work is not good. Right. I feel like we kind of get lost in the algorithm of everything that's going. Yeah. On. Yeah. And trying to, like, I think we're a generation of people taught to game the system. Yeah. And somewhere along the way, people have forgotten that the best way to game the system is to play the game really well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just be the best. You can't. A, a really famous cerebral assassin from WWE once said, it's all about the game and how you <laughs> and play. How you play. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's pretty good, man. Oh, you got anything else to ask you? Um, I got a couple. I got three rapid fire questions. I'm going to let you out of here for the day. Um, first one: What series or what work period have you ever done that you had the most fun doing? I was recently thinking back to Justice League Dark, and I probably had like way too much fun, especially writing like some of the meta issues of Justice League Dark. Like it comes across <laughs> in the work. Yeah. <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> Um, next, you get called up to win an Eisner, a Harvey, a Blammy Award, a Grammy, an Oscar, whatever you want to call it. What's your walk-up music to the stage? And what are you saying if they try to play the wrap-it-up music mid-speech? Uh, Fever Ray. Um, I, can't, I can't remember the name of the song, but I know the song. Am I allowed to look it up? Yeah, yes. Say, yeah. Hey, we encourage everybody here at the Black Variant to do your Googles. Yeah, exactly. Hey, definitely. Eva Ray, If I Had a Heart. Okay. The name of the okay. Song. Uh, that's my walk-up music. Uh, and I am, I am using one of those Ex Machina EMPs to shut <laughs> yeah. off all the electronic equipment. <laughs> If music starts playing in the middle of me, uh, in the middle of my acceptance speech. It's only right. It's only right. All right. And last one is, someone wants to read a, a Ron V book. Which one would you recommend and why? I don't know. Pick up, pick up whatever you want. Um, I don't, I don't. People always ask me like, oh, which one of these is your favorite? And I'm like, I don't have, it's like asking me like, which one of your kids is your favorite? Uh, I don't, I don't. They're exaltations. They're expressions. 
they came out of me in interesting ways. Pick up whatever, whatever you like, whatever you want, uh, and hopefully you enjoy them. Uh, Rob, we thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate you so much. Thank you for making the time, man. We really appreciate yeah. it. Continue being my an pleasure, inspiration, man. Thank you for everything you've done, man. Appreciate you. Thank uh, you. Thank you for having me. Follow us at Black Variant RNC. Raise subscribe to the channels and the podcast feeds. Uh, Patreon.com backslash the Black Variant RNC. Much more content coming for you guys for this week. Uh, I am X. This is Van. And we have had Rom th- on this week. We will see y'all later. Bye. <laughs>